Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so very much for joining me today. I'm very honored by your presence uh, wherever in the world you're listening to me and in India. Um, I, I really am honored that you take the time out. Um, so um, we are on our series today of... Um, or for the week, actually, uh, about India, history of India, or Bharat. Um, and today we're going to touch a little bit on the Maratha Empire. Many people think it was the British who brought the Mughals down, but it was not the British who brought the Mughals down. We were not told the truth. It was the Marathas and the British bought the Marathas down, okay? So in between the British and the Mughals, um, it was the uh, Marathas, and we'll get right into it, the Maratha Empire, an empire that only a few have heard about in the world. Even if you go to the Indian subcontinent, not many people know details about this group of people, except those who come from the modern state of Maharashtra, with its capital, Mumbai, formerly known as Bombay. Um, I've had many an opportunity to walk her soil and run on her shows. Her energy is boundless and very gracious. I would never be the person I am today without her sharing her soul with me, and I'm very grateful. Maratha refers to a class of warriors uh, and peasants who rose up from the Maratha Empire, or Confederacy. Maharashtra is a state on the western coast of India, a land that has seen many refugees, traders, travelers pass through. Their descendants integrated into the land and formed generations of kingdoms and empires. One of those empires was the Maratha Empire. The Maratha Empire was located in the Deccan, a land on the western coast of India. The land was occupied by the Bahamani uh, Sultanate, in 1347 until 1528, they broke away into five successor states, namely the Ahmednagar Bidar, the Berar, the Golconda, and the Bijapur Sultanates. These successor states fought to become independent from the original Sultanate, starting with Ahmednagar um, Sultanate, the Bijapur, and the Berar Sultanate in 1490, and the Golconda in 1518 AD, and Bidar Sultanate 1528 AD. There were plenty of infighting and subsequent alliances against outsider kingdoms. Prior to the Maratha Empire's taking shape, the land was occupied by Adil Shah of Bijapur and Nizam Shah of Ahmednagar. Um, two empires who were at constant war with each other. There was hunger, there was famine, um, and in, in 1530 AD, starvation and life was not safe for anyone. The locals were free to... Um, were not free to celebrate any festivals and their Hindu way of life. There was a problem with the landlords and the land during this time, there existed a system called the Jagidari system, or created by the Islamic occupation uh, by, of the Delhi Sultanate in the 13th century, later adopted by the Mughals and then the East India Company. Uh, the system, was meant, system meant that the empire gave 
uh, uh, gave out grants of land as a feudal grant to the Jagidars. A Jagidar was able to keep um, the land, that means a landowner, he was able to keep the land and collect land revenue until death, whereupon he reverted the land reverted to the state. They were required to maintain a small army to protect their land. In reality, the Jagidari system became the hereditary or the first male uh, system um, delivered to the first male heir. In Maharashtra, two clans of Deshmukhs and Deshpandes were the largest owners of the Jagis. Um, that means landowner, and the constant fighting in between them. They were least concerned about the land and the people living on them, causing a lot of upheaval among them. In the north, you had the Mughal Empire, who were intent on conquering the south. To ensure their success in the south of the country and the Deccan, the Mughals started training the locals in the art of military warfare, as well as administration, but played out but played into their strength. Thus, the Maratha war local warriors and peasants had risen to military strength and in administrative abilities uh, to take over these infighting kingdoms. The Deccan is a very mountainous territory. It is a natural protection from the outside invaders. The scarcity of rainfall in some areas forced the locals to become self-reliant. The mountainous terrain gave the Maratha warriors successful leverage to play out guerrilla tactics, a reason why the Mughal Empire from the north needed locals on their side to control this territory but was never able to capture it successfully. The Maratha Empire was formed was empire formally commenced with Swaji Maharaj from 1627 to 1680 AD. Born in Shivneri Fort near Pune, he was named after the local deity Shivai and crowned on June 6, 1674. As uh, legend goes, Swaji's father took him to the court of the Sultan of uh, Nojapur. Uh, Sivaji was said to be not even 12 years old. While Sivaji's father touched the ground twice and bowed down to the Sultan, Sivaji took a few steps backwards and stood tall, his head unbent. He refused to bow down to a foreign ruler. This was the beginning of the Maratha Empire and the fight for freedom from foreign colonization and, occupied, and occupation. On the west, the Deccan was a long coastline, so the Maratha Empire had a fleet of naval ships, ships who defended her shores from the Siddhis, the Portuguese, and the British. From the north, the Mughals were their traditional enemies. Uh, Sivaji's reign was about establishing Hindavi Swaraj, self-rule for Hindustan. Although Sivaji Maharaj died young, his empire went on to control most of the Indian subcontinent, ending in 1818 with the East India Company. Some of its major campaigns besides the, Mara besides the Mughals in the north were the Anglo-Mysore War, the Anglo-Maratha Wars, and the, and yes, and the Anglo-Maratha Wars. Uh, one thing no one... Uh, no, no one talks about is that slavery was a big part of the imperial spirituality of Abrahamic feudal religions. Uh, slavery was the foreign currency and energy policy. All those who were Christian and Muslims on the Indian subcontinent today are actually leftovers of their feudal slave tactics and campaigns. To keep the control of our minds, they converted the feudal slavery into religious ideologies to keep the control of our votes and economics 
around us. Uh, Herbert de Jagger, who was an ambassador of the Dutch East India Company in India during the time of the during the time of the Maratha Empire, noted that his permit given by the Maratha Empire to trade on their lands. And he said, under the Moorish government, that's the Muslim governments, it remained lawful for you to buy and transport from her men and women slaves without hindrance of any, from anyone. But now, so long as I am the master of these lands, you shall not buy or transport any men or women as slaves. And if you happen to do so and convey them to neighboring lands, my people will set themselves against it, hinder it in all manners of manner of ways, and will not allow for their being brought back to your factory. This must this must you observe and fulfill in 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 a prescribed manner. Uh, written in uh, taken quoted from a book by um, Nikila, Nila Kanta Shastri, Svaji Charter to the Dutch on the Coromandel Coast, Proceedings of the Indian History Congress. Uh, so this is a, a quote from that book. For It's on the internet, on the web, if you want to take a look at it. For all that was written by the Marxist and Abrahamic writers, the Maratha Empire was the first group to rise up and fight against the Abrahamic invasion of Sindh and their slavery imposed on the people who refused to submit to them. A feudal colonization now allegedly turned into religions of peace. Even if our Marxist politicians sold our dignity to the highest bidder for 60 years through the back door, the truth will always come out. So from the Maratha Empire, we go to the Vijayanagar Empire. The Vijayanagar Empire rose to prominence in 1366 AD as a revolt to the Islamic colonization of northern India. Said to have started with members of the Sangama dynasty, the alliance would later be called the Vijayanagar Empire. Before 1366, the local kingdoms were constantly attacked by northern invaders. The Delhi Sultanate, the Kilgis, the Tughlaqs, Ended, ending in 1646 AD, the empire ensured uh, the survival of our Vedic heritage to the chagrin of uh, Islamic onslaughts, whose goal was money, power, and rebranding our ancient heritage and our civilization as their own. The empire reached its peak during the rule of the Krishna Deva Raya in 1529 AD. The empire was well administered into provinces, then regions and countries, and then municipalities. Each hereditary family paid tribute to the ruler, ruled over by members of the royal family. The economy was an aggregate-based economy. There was a huge uh, scale trade with China, exporting cotton, Ivory, spices, perfumes, trade was all carried out by other lands and empires from Yemen to mainland Arabia, the Far East of Persia. Mining and cotton production was a very big industry. Gold, silver, precious stones and ferrous metals were mined and the Vijayanagar Empire was the well-known hub for industry. Taxing goods and services bought it big revenue. Even temples were taxed. Social tiers that formed society, mainly the upper class royalty and noble elite, the warrior class, the merchant class, the artisan class. There was the orthodoxy who controlled the ideological temples of the land and all that stemmed from it. Modern Marxist writers called these social structures as caste, although the word caste is Latin and 
only entered the Hindui discourse during the Portuguese uh, invasion. Those who insist on ignorance call it Hindu Varna system, where Varna has nothing to do with the social structuring of society. It was no different from any feudal society and social economic engineering. The empire was Hindui based, but was accepting of people from all backgrounds, given that they traded with Africa, Arabia, China, and the Far East. There were many Arab traders who settled in the south in India, along the Malabar coast, where they married locals. Their offspring were known as Mapilas. Arts and literary works flourished in Sanskrit and Canada. Music, grammar, medicines, and mathematics. Architecture is second to none. A town, the town of Hampi being the, the most well-known, considered by Islamic invaders, conquered by Islamic invaders from the north in 1565 and pillaged for six months, it was abandoned and now a world heritage site. Eventually, the northern Islamic sultanates increased attacks, including, including internal kingdoms, uh, um, Warfare led to an empire's decline commencing in 1565. By 1646 AD, the empire had come to a standstill and a split into multiple smaller kingdoms, including the famous Kingdom of Mysore. So we go to the Kingdom of Mysore and Tipu Sultan. Originally a noble family from Mysore, the Vadiyar fa family founded approximately in 1399 um, the Kingdom of Mysore. It aligned with the Vijayanagar Empire as a vessel state, but broke, broke free when the empire weakened. Vadiyar means lordship. At its height, it occupied large parts of the modern state, Karnataka, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh. The small vessel kingdoms broke away from the Vijayanagar Empire in 1565 AD. Um, it went on until 1951 AD, with the exception of 1760 to 1799, when the kingdom was effectively ruled by two Islamic generals and converted into a sultanate-style administrative kingdom. From 1799 to 1951, it was a princely state and then dissolved as part of the Indian Republic. Under the Mysore patronage, the kingdom became a center of literature, Carnatic music, traditional and religious drama and music all of which still carries on until today. At its peak, the kingdom expanded to become a more powerful force in the southern Deccan. It traditional, its traditional armies were the Marathas in northern, in the north, the kingdoms of Hyderabad run by the Nizams and king, kingdoms of Travancore and Malabar in the south. It reached its military height with Tipu Sultan and fought, fought four Anglo-Mysore wars. The first two won by the kingdom of Mysore, the third was a stalemate, and the fourth was lost to the British by the general Tipu Sultan. Um, Towards the tail end of the 18th century, there arose two sultans. In 1758, during the Battle of, of Bangalore, now Bang Bengaluru, against the Marathas, one army general rose in fame uh, for victory and capture of its territory, Haider Ali. For his achievements, the king of Mysore gave him the title Nawab Haider Ali bin Bahadur. By the 1760s, the Maratha power had diminished. Hyder Ali then extended the Mysore kingdom. The Marathas formed an alliance with Mysore, with the British and the Nizam of Golconda. 
um, and the Nizam of Golconda and fought the first Anglo-Mysore war and lost. Um, I'll repeat that. The Marathas formed an alliance against Mysore, okay, uh, with the British and the Nizam of Golconda and fought their first Anglo-Mysore war and lost. By 1779, he, uh, Haider Ali, uh, made an alliance with the French and the Marathas and the Nizam of Golconda and won the Second Anglo-Mysore War, but died in the battlefield. His son Tipu Sultan took over and was known as the Tiger of Mysore. Tipu lost some of its terri- his territory gained by his father and then made the mistake of attacking the Kingdom of Travancore, then an ally of the British, which led to the Third Anglo-Mysore War. The British took over the city of... Sh- I'm going to repeat that... Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to repeat that. I'm going to start again. The British took over the city of Sri Ranga Patna and half the territory, half his territory and two of his sons. Tipu made an alliance with the French, the Emir of Afghanistan, the Ottomans of Turkey, lost the battle against the British who were backed by the Marathas and the Nizam of Golconda. Tipu Sultan died on the battlefield and the kingdom was restored to its original status, the Kingdom of Mysore, then became a princely state until 1951 under Hindu rule. Since 1947, as the Indian National Congress ran the new dominion of India, they have controlled the media and the academia. They they indoctrinated they indoctrinated three to four generations of Indians with tales of the British being bad colonizers and their version of history. Never did we get the whole story or the explanation of what happened and uh, before and after. Just that the British were bad. They also promoted false rhetorics of those lobbyists who greased their pocket. This is why our history books have been filled with glorifying Islamic invaders of the Indian subcontinent as our peaceful brothers and only half-truths to keep the Muslims on their vote banks. They glorified predominantly Islamic wars, war generals who massacred their way into Hindustan territory and one of them was Tipu Sultan. He was made a war hero and promoted to a celestial status with TV series and movies made in his name. In reality, the story was only partly correct. Tipu reigned for 17 years, allied with the French, who already had a base on the East India coast. He bought French technology for his carpentry and iron-making and Chinese technology for weapons, all attributed to to Tipu Sultan, but in reality imported. Tipu Sultan was said to be tolerant and uh, ushered a reign of tolerance. Wrong. Right from the times of the Vijayanagar Empire days, the kings of its realm had accepted and invited people from all lands to trade with them. It was Arabia that broke all its temple and colonized the landscape. Hindi kings allowed the construction of mosques in spite of the invasion of Islamic invaders. The very fact that an Islamic general was part of the Hindi army told the story. Tipu Sultan Tipu was only a sultan and made his subjects and most of his subjects were Hindus. So he did not have any choice to be tolerant. But having said all of that... um, 
you have to understand that people don't change overnight just because you have uh, uh, a Muslim ruler, Hindu ruler. The ruler is there to rule and make as much as money and gain power the longest possible. The only way to do it is 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 to make alliances with the people on the ground. Okay, and that's what we call grassroots today. So they, they to maintain their empire, they had to do grassroots work, uh, form alliances, local tribes, local classes, uh, the panchayats. Uh, and so they were seen as tolerant, but in reality, they were just alliances made to maintain the empire. And slowly by slowly, they would convert, they would take people on their side. Uh, but it's because that's the way life is all over the planet. And also the South Indian people, the Mysore people, Karnataka, Kerala, they are fantastically tolerant. The Vijayanagar Empire was well known, was very rich, was very um, uh, well-based. Uh, very powerful, and that only comes with balancing the status quo and being tolerant. Uh, it doesn't come with being intolerant and all you get all this money from the stars. It doesn't happen that way. But of course, we've been painted the picture that oh, the only Islam bought the tolerance, and the Hindus were bad caste people, and they were fat, and they were rich. And how did the rich come by commerce? How do you do commerce by being by being bold and by being tolerant, by forming forming bonds, by sharing our knowledge? sharing cultures and that's how the Indian subcontinent welcomed people from all over the world. Refugees came from every single part of the world. We were a land of refugees. We actually have, all of us have some history uh, starting um, of our ancestors coming to the land one by one by one and one. Today we all call ourselves Indian, but at one point, all of us, our ancestors, you can go back a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, ten thousand years. We are migratory species, so yes, we migrate um, all the time. And and so um, forming, coming, if you come to a land of Hindustan or Bharat, she would not take you, she was not tolerant. And so to to put only Islamic uh, generals who butchered their way to the subcontinent as generals while the Hindus as fat pigs and caste pigs, that is typical Indian National Marxist Congress. Uh, the Marxists who needed vote banks, who knew that they were they were playing a Marxist dirty game and they knew that the Indians, the local uh, Dharmic people, the Hindu people, would not accept them. So they went with the enemy. and not, I wouldn't say the enemy, but they went with, uh, with people who bought their lives for money and power and to continue, continue the hangover of colonization. And this is where we've come to today, unfortunately. So, on the contrary uh, to what the Indian National Congress told us, um, there were forced conversions by Tipu Sultan noted in history. The Naira clans of Malabar, 400,000 Malabar Hindus, were converted by force to Islam, as well as the Hindus of Kurg. Uh, he is said to have destroyed over two dozen churches, captured 60,000 Christians, and forced them to convert to his Islamic religion of peace. And that you get from the archive.org uh, select letters of Tipu Sultan from the University of California. So that, my friend, is a little bit about... Um, the Kingdom of Mysore and Tipu Sultan. It's a great place, Karnataka. Um, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, I've been there a little bit, and I would suggest all of you go. This is a great history. We never learned about it in, in school. I've heard about the Vijayanagar Empire, but nothing great. Um, 
And I hope that you would all research as much about it as much as possible because very, very important, very great, great part of our history. And they are going to be the foundation and the backbone of the resurrection of the Indian subcontinent and our Vedic civilization. And now we come to something that uh, I'm sure all of you have known, heard about. Um, but we've heard all absolute nonsense from the... Um, from the from the Indian National Congress, who told us absolute gibberish, nothing that made any sense, and all they said about this 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 uh, time was the British, the British, they stole forty five trillion from us. There, I don't think anyone knows how to count to forty five trillion, so I don't know where they get this number for forty five trillion. But uh, we'll take a look at it, and I'm talking about the British East India Company. Um, and so we come to the British. Never has one group been so vilified from, from one angle other than the British. What can you say about modern socialist democracy? Especially one it's run by a Marxist socialist regime that trolls itself as a secular democracy. In reality, it's the regime of the Indian National Congress, the worst colonial empire of its kind, which makes the British East India Company look like saints, though neither were. They both mirrored each other. Uh, one ended up as the British Raj and the other as the License Raj. It's important to say that the British over here, as we will uh, see, um, there were many European trading companies that reached Indian soil. So by the 16th century, we had the Portuguese, then we had the Dutch trading companies, the French, and of course the British, who sent their companies to India and beyond. Notably Indonesia. Hindustan, as it was known back then, had been the land of the free, rich and powerful. No Marxism in her midst, but a heavy dose of feudalism. Her GDP was the top of the list of list albeit the same was benefited only for the elite feudal class. They came to trade in silk, in cotton, in gold, sold spices, benefited, um, sorry, in ferrous metals, goods made and raw materials at a ch cheaper price, and that this was would be sold at a high price. Thus the Dutch East India Company, founded in 1602 AD, French East India Company in 1668 AD, the Danish East India Company founded in 1628 AD, the Austrian uh, uh, Company founded in 1778, the Portuguese came in 1510, and the British East India Company founded in 1612. Some very important concepts not needed to be understood in order to go through this section. So I'm going to give you these concepts and we'll, and we'll then talk about the British East India Company. There was no country called India during that time. It was a territory ruled by the Mughal Empire, Maharajas, Nawabs and Zamindars, which are local landlords. There was no law of any kind except religious law run by uh, feudal, local feudal mullahs, pandits and padres. Well, there were no Christian priests that much at that time. They were interpreted uh, as, as different ideologies in different angles from different feudal orthodox groups. There was no way of doing any commerce except through feudal and tribal lineage. If you did not have any lineage, you were doomed to stay at the bottom of the ladder forever. 
trade to join stock companies and to contracts with local businesses and not to lineage found her huge market on the subcontinent. Thousands of people who had no way of rising up the ladder of economics and society were benefited from the same. There was no way to enforce the contract signed with the British East India traders and local agents, middlemen leaving both sides at a loss and a huge mistrust. As a result, when the opportunity arose to enforce these contracts through alliances with the local Nawabs and putting a law in place through courts and administration, the political power of the British East India Company rose to finally form an empire. The British East India Company was strict was given strict instructions from the Crown and head office in London not to involve themselves in local politics and their religious wrangling. It would never it was never their goal to become an imperial power. The British East India Company in 1800s wanted to leave the Indian subcontinent due to the political turmoil after the death of Aranzan. It was the local traders who convinced them to stay. My dear friends, I don't know if anyone knows this, but the British East India Company in in the 1800s wanted to leave the Indian subcontinent due to the political turmoil after the death of Aranzan. It was the local traders on the ground who convinced them to stay. It was the massacre of English women and men in Calcutta that turned the tide from trading company to political rulers in 1757, also known as the Battle of Plassey. Um, The opportunity they saw in Bengal and the need to form a system of law and order, courts and liability, a requirement to enforce contracts signed by all parties and stem smuggling is what eventually made them take over Bengal in 1757 um, AD. Um, it was not the locals of India who began the fight for so-called freedom from the British. On the contrary, they wanted the British to stay. It was a change in mentality by the British who did not appreciate monopolies and charters granted by the Crown, uh, as well as the moral conscience of the anti-monopoly lobby at Westminster in Edmund Burke and Adam Smith, who fought to bring down the the British East India Company from London uh, with a trial an impeachment of the East India Company. This led to a series of events which eventually brought about the Battle of Plassey in 1757 and then to the fabricated independence in 1947 AD. The modern Indian court system, courts, laws come from this junction. The system of trade and commerce and and the structure it walled into its is only because of disjunction and beginnings with the European trade companies. Uh, The East India Company had started on the grounds of merchants, explorers who appealed to the crown, wanting to explore and trade in South Asia, originally called the Society of Adventures of the East Indies. It traded under the name the Company of the Merchants Trading to the East Indies. On the last day of 1600 AD, the Crown granted the charter and off they went. Merchants, seafarers, explorers, a ship was already beginning to sail to the East Indies, Indonesia, for spices. From its inception on Indian soil in 1608, a factory was set up um, in the town of 
Oh my goodness. Machilapatnam in Coromandel Coast in the Bay of Bengal in around two years. The company sought and received a license from the Mughal Emperor Jahangir for a factory in Surat, Gujarat in 1612. A mission, the mission did take four years, but successful, and Sir Thomas Rowe was given exclusive rights to trade in Surat and under the encampments in return for goods from the European market. Luckily for uh, the English, the Emperor was impressed with the naval power of the English vessels, who had to sink four Portuguese ships in... Um, in the Battle of Suvali in October of 1612 AD. In, in a letter to Emperor Jahangir, okay, the crown stated, When your majesty shall open this letter, let your royal heart be as fresh as a sweet garden. Let all people make revenge, uh, reverence at your gate. I apologize. Let your throne be advanced higher among the greatness of the ships of the kings of the prophet Jesus. Let your majesty be the greatest and all monarchies derive their counsel and wisdom from your breast as, the, as from a fountain. That the law of the majesty of Jesus may revive and flourish under your protection. The letter of love and friendship which you send, which you sent, and the presents, tokens of your good affections towards me, I have received by your hands, Ambassador Sir Thomas Rowe, came the reply, um, who well deserves to be your trusted servant. Deliver to me in an acceptable and happy hour upon which mine, my eyes were so fixed that I could not easily remove them to any other object and have accepted with great joy and delight. Upon which assurance of your royal love, I, I have given my general command to all the kingdoms and ports of the dominions to receive all the merchants of the English nation as the subjects of my friend, that uh, in what place soever they choose to live, they may have free liberty without any restraint, and at what ports uh, soever they shall arrive, they need that neither Portugal nor any other shall dare to molest their quiet um, in what city soever they have, they shall have residence. I have commanded all my governors and captains to give them freedom uh, answerable to their own desires, to sell, to buy, and to transport into their country, into the, their country at their pleasure. For confirmation of our love and friendship, I desire your majesty to command your merchants to bring in their ships of all sorts of rarities and English goods fit for my palace, and that you be pleased and send me your royal letters of every opportunity. I may rejoice in your health and prosperous, prosperous affairs, that our friendship may be interchanged and eternal. Your majesty, I... Is learned, is learned, and quick-sighted as a prophet, and conceived so much a few words. I need to not. I need to write any more. Uh, the God of heavens give you and us an increase of honor. So this was the letters between um, the crown and uh, Emperor Jahangir's court, uh, and thus began the relationship between the British and um, and India. And that's why we're still we speak English, and well. That's how we got to speak English, and that's why we're having this podcast in English today. It could have been any other language, but yeah, <laughs> English it is. Thus began a 400-year relationship with the British Isles. The British East India Company 
would go on to eclipse the Portuguese, allied with the Dutch, and establish many more trading ports in India, Mumbai, Calcutta, and Madras uh, between 1632 and 1690 AD. The only difference between these forts was that Fort St. George in Madras was built on land bought by the British. Um, thus, Madras became the first British colonial holding on Indian soil. By 1661, the marriage of Charles II and to Catherine of Braganza meant the islands of Bombay were gifted to the British as dowry, leading to the growth of the trading port as its British as um, leading to the growth of the trading port um, um, as the British as the birth of a commercial town, which would lead it to becoming the commercial nucleus of the country for 400 years down the road. And that, my friends, uh, was Bombay, um, or now Mumbai. During this time, the tide began to change. At the settlement in Surat was As the settlement in Surat was Mughal territory, the threat of invasions from the Marathas were real. The Marathas wanted to raid the warehouse of the British in Surat, which was very well defended by the English. These events, the well-stung together military force of the British, including their superior naval power, which was very clearly a weakness of the Mughals, made them realize that they were dependent on the British. This gave the East India Company full and sole authority over the lands of Bombay, and therefore the foundation of British courts. Administration and courts were formed. However, problems, problems were never far away. Monopoly meant corruption. Private trading by co company employees, which reduced tariff, but uh, re private trading by company employees, which reduces tariff, but encourages uh, corruption. Uh, however, by 1670 AD, the company was granting sweeping, granted sweeping powers to mint money, command fortresses, acquire land, and exercise civil and criminal ju jurisdiction over its areas. In 1689 AD, the company entered into a tift with the then Bing governor of Bengal, Shaista Khan. It led to a counterattack on the port of Bombay and a siege. Um, this led to the intervention of Aran Emperor Aurangzeb. The company was defeated and fined. By the end of the 17th century, the fortress became small towns. With English laws, clergy, administration, courts, and the Union Jack flew over the encampments. There were courts to settle the commercial disputes and were used by natives who gathered around these towns and formed satellite villages and towns around these forts. One of the downfalls of the system was the company officials and employees also acted as private traders. Even the company governors amassed considerable amount of wealth in private trading, going on to lead comfortable lives on their return to Britain. All this created a ruckus in, in Britain. Local producers of goods now shipped from India were out of jobs. This is besides the company paying Westminster and officers of the court bribes to buy out votes. Haven't we heard that before? In his book, The East India Company, Tirthankar Das notes that the trade by the company fueled a consumer boom and vice versa. The boom fueled the need for trade. Uh, this also fueled a whole new economy by credit, banking, 
coats, port systems, and docks were constructed. Shipping became an industry, and many commercial buildings were financed by this profit. This trade was financed by silver from the Americas, which was cheaper than the silver from Asia. This profit was enough to finance this economic boom. In 1700, another product was added to the list. Tea drinking would become a fashion after the marriage of Catherine of Berganza to, Catherine, to Charles II. Trade with the East India Company did not take away anything from the locals, on the contrary. Prior to the Europeans entering the scene, commerce was done with one, on one by one with communities, on the basis of line, lineage. One would not work out of the system. The landowner or zamindars, the nawabs, the feudal lords, sultans and maharajas, control all routes, taxations, rights, and revenue. One could not get out of the class system for any purpose on the Indian subcontinent. Um, this is why the British system was so effective, and they found a ready market, ready allies, and plenty of local agents to work with. They were willing to sign contracts with any merchant, non-incumbent of class and caste, people who were poor, no history of commerce. It meant risks and bad debt, but it gave the locals who really needed the money and a way to generate money, a way out of the family and community monopolies that ruled the subcontinent. While we point fingers at, at the East India Company and the monopoly it had from the crown, the subcontinent was exactly the same. Suffocation from these feudal houses, zamindars and the monopolies it ran. East India trading companies produced a new class of nouveau riche. Uh, many big Indian industrial houses became, made their fortunes with the British and the Europeans coming to the India and trading as well as opening up the European markets for the subcontinent. The system of administration, courts, commerce, uh, not binding only to caste and class, was what led the East India Company finally becoming the British Raj in India and becoming successful. Even with disadvantages on both sides, the new commercial system introduced by the British put life into commerce of the Indian subcontinent to the lights that they had never seen before. Colonization was the last thing on their mind. Trade and commerce above color and lineage was all they cared about. Political power did, did come and hard. The death of Aurangzeb in 1707, meant the empire crumbled from the inside. Provinces broke away. The company in, the con in this context wanted to safeguard its interests and all the factory encampments it set up under the license and patronage of the Mughals. Added to that, the rivalry between the English and the, and the French flared up again. The Indian subcontinent became a theater for the proxy war between the English and the French. The Karnataka was a hotbed for power grab in those years. Uh, the French and the English both took sides and the British won the third and the last war. In 1763, a treaty was signed. In the south, the British East India Company now represented a whole basket of dynasties and represented their alliances on the battlefield commercially. Um, while the scene was turbulent in the south, in Bengal, the province was ruled by the Nawab Murshid Kulis. Um, on the death, on his death, Bengal was attacked by Maratha raids. Bengal therefore needed support of the British and vice versa. 
The British needed Nawab's support for licenses to trade in the region. However, there was some animosity between the Nawabs and the British as their private traders refused to pay customs duty to the Nawabs and they used the license of the company. Uh, the feud led to the Nawab uh, Siraj ud Daula attacking Calcutta, where the British had a settlement. British citizens were taken prisoners, 146 in all, locked in a dungeon. They died from suffocation and dehydration. This would lead to a revenge attack by the East India Company. They gathered all their claimants to the throne of Bengal, the first time a war was fought with an Indian ruler instead of other Europeans. Um, the British won in 1757. A puppet Nawab Mir Jafar was placed on the throne and thus began the rule of the British on the Indian soil at the Battle of Plassey. Without Bengal, the Mughal Empire was redundant. They needed revenue from Megal to, to maintain their empire. Now with political power and a revenue system in its grasp, the East India Company increased taxes on the presence. They used it to finance uh, their exports to, British, to Britain. They were able to address a very important issue, logistics system to deliver goods from the interiors and a system of courts to address the poor enforcement of trade contracts as well as licenses. The zamindars in Bengal were still ruled the roost. Most of the local power was in their hands and the population under their grasp. A South Asian system of serfdom, the zamindari system used, was also used by the British, was preceded by the jagidari system used by the uh, Delhi Sultanate and the Mughal Empire. This was a bone of contention for the British. Under Warren Hastings, the new governor of Bengal in 1772, a new administrative, fiscal, and judicial reforms were put in. Officers had to learn local languages and customs in order to maintain peace in the region. However, they turned a blind eye even to the zamindari problems, which were rooted in corruption. This brought the economy to a catapulting tumble and it did not help when the Nawabs became dependent on the British to protect them from the Maratha raids. Westminster. What hurt the East India Company the most was the internal struggle to bring down the company in Parliament. Led by Edmund Burke, he led a 10-year struggle against Warren Hastings and the British East India Company for monopoly and corruption. He called for, uh, for an impeachment on Hastings and lost. Warren Hastings' impeachment trial was in 1791. While Hastings was not impeached, this event made it very clear that the East India Company had come to an end. The rampant corruption cost of, uh, to the shareholders created enough of fluctuations to warrant an end to its activities. One of the activities that miffed the moral soul of Edmund Burke was the opium trade. Um, the East India Company had depended on American silver to pay for its imports um, from India. With the American War of Independence, silver stopped being imported and was was replaced by opium trade to China. Not only was it wrong, but many of the Maratha wars with the company were for the control of these routes. By 1818, the company lost its monopoly in, of, on Indian trade. However, it remained an administrator only. During this period, infrastructure was built to administer the country, 
taking into account the different religious codes. In 1857, the Sepoy mutiny brought an end to this period. The mutiny was a resistance to the British taking over the Indian subcontinent, started by the Sepoys or Indian troops serving in the East India Company in Bengal. It spread. It's sometimes called the First Indian War of Independence but I do not like using that title, as there were Indian nobility and kingdoms that fought on each, either side along with the British. There were multiple reasons for the anger, and all warranted, I might add. In the end, the reason used was that Enf the Enfield rifled, rumoured to have used grease coming from fat of the cow and, and, and the pig. This set off a series of events that led to the rebellion and the British East India Company, although it won that war, was completely knocked out of India. The Queen declared India a crown possession. And yes, my friend, that is the history of the Indian subcontinent during the British uh, East India Company time. We were not told any of this. We were just told the East India Company was corrupt. We were not told why it was corrupt. We were not told before, after, what mistakes we made, what what was going on on the ground, the, the currents that form our waves, the Atwa, all that lies in between. Nothing. It was just the British were bad. And uh, unfortunately, it's not true because if we did learn this, we did learn about all of, of the above. We would not be making this history, these problems today, or the same mistakes. We would have corrected it. We could have been a lot better, but we didn't because we were too busy being brainwashed uh, by the License Raj and the Indian National Congress and their Marxist cronies. Uh, and I, I can swear to you that they were ten times worse than the, than the British East India Company. Uh, so we'll take it from there, my friends. And we're going to go something very important because we never talk about this. Absolutely never. But it existed. Serfdom and slavery. As we close this chapter, we come to a concept which is very few people, which very few people dare to talk. Indian serfdom, it exists in all its formats. We have gone over it, om omitted from having a discussion on it, pushed it under the rug. The day has come that we have to talk about it. The Vedic civilization has been on the decline for the last two, three millennia, and perhaps more. With the influx of refugees from the Middle East turning desert, and Abrahamic tribes flowing from this overflowing from this region, the influx slowly brought this civilization down. The tribes and nomads slowly converted this land into the image of the lands they left behind. The subcontinent slowly became feudal and serfdom set in. This serfdom became a thorn in our sides and we have not been able to talk about it as Western interests keep shifting the goalposts. The change of labels, they change the labels but the mentality remains the same. If we are to move forward on the Indian subcontinent, we have to absolutely have this conversation about slaves and serfdom. Serfdom is when an individual becomes a serf or he is tied to a feudal estate through force or by necessity. In other words, a servant in modern terms of life. This meant even if the children of, uh, were born as to these serfs, they remained in serfdom through generations. This was a staple diet of feudalism. All this existed on the Indian subcontinent. The word for serfs in the, on the subcontinent is Dalit. We have always uh, said 
it is to be Hindu. However, I've mentioned earlier in a previous podcast that this is a Hebrew word, meaning the Hebrews and Aramaic people had this concept in their feudal systems too. To be a serf meant to be you were poor. Uh, these refugees fled to the Indian subcontinent from pandemic, seismic events, untouchability uh, of the Middle East, um, genocide, uh, ignorance and for a better life in Hindustan that, that gave them the freedoms uh, beyond the Abrahamic um, tribes. But as we all know, this takes time. In the interim, we converted this country in the image of the lands we left behind. This serfdom got rigid and became a facet of life of the Indian subcontinent, that which was totally destroyed by her soul. In the advent of Christianity and Islam, this got rebranded into other terms. Hence, we do not see the bottom of the barrel. Under the Islamic Delhi Sultanate, we have the system impl implemented by occupation called Jagidar to hold land, a feudal estate, given to a feudal lord. The tenants of these estates were in servitude to the state. An appointee of the state collected taxes and revenue from the estate. Uh, this system continued under the Mughals with slight differences. When the Mughal Empire collapsed, the Rajput Juts, the small kingdoms and principalities, continued the same feudal serf economic situation. Under the Mughals, these tracts of lands were held by the nobility, just like the dukes and the feudal lords of England. The same feudal system continued under the British East India Company, now known as the Zamindari system. It was later continued by the British Raj with a difference. Under the Mughals, the Zamindars never owned the land. As a result, their way of income was plundering estates by, of neighboring feudal lords, and the spiral of violence meant that they never ended. No improvements to this land were undertaken. This was a disaster waiting to happen. This was exactly what took place in 1770, just after the East India Company took control of Bengal. No one from the Indian government in the last 73 years have dared to have this conversation. Under the East India Company, the feudal lords were made permanent landlords in the return for the fixed return of wealth. The British Raj did away with small armies that the Zamindars had from 1857 with few exceptions. The Islamic colonization did not last as long on the, in the South for a long time. There were other systems used compared to feudal system of Zamindars in the South. In the 1950s, after the Indian government and the Congress fought for the, their fought for their so-called independence, the Zamindari system was abolished and the land reforms were brought in. The farmers, Attila, as they were known in India, uh, were given ownership of the lands they tilled, especially uh, if the feudal lord or landlord owner was absent. However, no help was given to the farmers to till these lands. Instead of the Zamindars, we had big banks giving them, um, giving them huge loans with exorbitant interest rates. The farmers committed suicide and the big landowners bought out the land back into collusion with the banks. So there are still serfs on land and the ancient serfdom on Indian soil has never gone away. It has just come back with a new label. However, the mentality is the same. Uh, hence, the farm laws of the current of the current Narendra Modi government 
Uh, it was very important to state that 86% of the Indian farmers are, are small farmers who have less than two acres of land. They were being eaten alive by the big landowners, otherwise known as the establishment or zamindars until 1950s. There were the same errors committed in Zimbabwe and New South Africa. Zimbabwe gave the land to small farmers but were not able to till the land. As a result, the agriculture suffered and the rest is history. So serfdom is alive and well on the Indian subcontinent until we have a debate on the stain of human civilization, and especially on Indian soil, or should I say all over the Indian subcontinent, we will never evolve. All colonization starts with commerce, through aggregating commerce, um, it finds a void and eventually becomes powerful force and then a colonial state. We have to t look at the issues at the bottom of the ladder and understand that these currents that, that form our waves. Calling a spade a spade is important. Colonization existed on the Indian subcontinent long before the British came. They joined the party late and left early. So that, my friends, is um, today's podcast uh, for you. The Maratha empires, the Vijayanagar empires, um, Kingdom of Mysore, Tipu Sultan, um, and the British East India Company. Uh, yes, that is all for today. I hope I gave you a lot to talk about, to read, to research. It is important to research. Please research as much as you can. It's important. Ask all the questions. Look at different debates, even if you do not like those debates. What is important is to put all the different angles together. There are 360 different angles. Put it together. Look at the currents that form their waves. Look at the other side, what the other side is saying, and reform the mosaic. Externalize right my friends. Writing is the best way of externalizing. Read, listen to what you say, let your, let, your, let your ears listen to your voice and you will have that conversation automatically. You will externalize and you will heal And because this is about healing. So I thank you again one more time for your time, your, um, your, um, um, your, honor that you accord me and I will leave you on a positive note today. Uh, India should in principle get a new president soon uh, and there was a tribal woman who was um, who was um, nominated by the BJP and she should in principle get that seat because uh, the BJP has got 48% of votes. She's a tribal woman, the first from the East. She's got trauma in her life. She lost her husband. She lost two of her sons. And she's still standing strong. You and I cannot do that. At least I know I can't. And so my hat's off to her. I hope she, she gets a nomination as the next president of India. She will be an absolute honor. And take your hats off to her if it does happen. Um, and I say congratulations if she does become the president. Um, and hopefully she will uh, preside over peace and healing over the Indian subcontinent and her people of this ancient civilization. So thank you to all of you for listening today. I hope you have a great day ahead. Cheers and stay safe, everyone.